Welcome to A Public Affair here on KGNU Community Radio. I'm your host today, Shannon Young. History books often glaze over the period in Europe just after the fall of the Roman Empire and before the rise of the feudal states. The so-called Dark Ages existed in the shadows of their better documented historical bookends, but there are plenty of engrossing stories from that period. The Dark Queens, the bloody rivalry that forged the medieval world is a book that zeroes in on two 6th century queens who married into the early dynasty that consolidated power in what is now modern day France and somewhat beyond those borders. Author Shelley Puhak joins me now via video conferencing. Hello. Hi, Shannon. Thanks so much for having me on today. Well, The Dark Queens is your first nonfiction book. You usually write poetry uh, or creative writing. So what led you to delve into nonfiction? So I think I've always been committed to feminist history, even in um, my poetry and my academic background. And I also have written a lot of short form nonfiction, but this was my first foray into such a longer form of nonfiction. You opened the story with an anecdote about how this all came out of a trip to the costume store. Can you share that with us? Absolutely. Um, And there's even a little bit more backstory I'm happy to share with listeners. And that is that I was working on a completely different project where I was essentially looking for these fierce female ancestors of my own when I stumbled across this story and uh, was just really surprised it wasn't better known. And I, you know, these were essentially the fierce female ancestors I thought we all needed. And so I had come across a mention of Brunhild and Fredega, and the two queens we'll be talking about today, their story in some medieval source material. And then shortly thereafter, I was in a costume store looking for Halloween garb for myself, for one of my children's um, Halloween party. And I remember looking at Cleopatra wig, and, you know, the conical princess hats and coming across one of those horned Viking helmets and thinking, wow, this, this, this is great. This will work. And it even had the little blonde braids that are, you know, like super glued on. And at that point, I delved a little bit into the history of those horned Viking helmets that we've all seen, right, in so many different venues and discovered that it dovetailed with this story of Brunhild and Fredegan that I had just recently stumbled onto. And I think from that point, I was just completely engrossed and, you know, fell down the rabbit hole of their history. Well, before we go down this rabbit hole ourselves, let's, I'm wondering, so the horned helmets are usually associated with Viking culture, but this Brunhild was a Spanish princess who ruled part of France. How, how was, how did you get this amalgamation of Viking helmet with Brunhilde. And I mean, like, how did this all come about? I think it's so fascinating that a lot of times when our histories aren't written explicitly or certain people are erased, that the truth has this habit of sort of bubbling up in odd places. So a lot of what we know about Brunhilde and Fredegund was forced underground because of this epic cover-up that we'll, I'm sure, talk about in a moment. Uh, But because of that, a lot of 
this, you know, a lot of the details of their lives and their exploits, they were preserved in myth and in legend. And a lot of this was grafted onto Norse legends and passed down in that way. And then uh, Richard Wagner stumbled you know, across this and immortalized it in his opera. And one of the costumes designers decided, you know what? I think that horned helmets would be perfect for this production. And that's how we all end up with the stereotype of Vikings, you know, particularly that busty woman holding the shield with her braids and her horned helmet. It comes to us, you know, it's a relatively late invention from the 19th century. So let's jump into the story here. The main characters who were real historical figures are Queen Brunhild and Queen Fredegund. Who were they and how significant were their times in power? So the Dark Queens is going to cover their history. And these are two incredibly influential rulers. They battle for control of Western Europe 1400 years ago. They have completely different backgrounds. One's a princess, the other's a slave, and they also have two completely different skill sets. One is more of a diplomat, and the other is much more of a strategist and a military leader. Um, and what's so fascinating for me about their story is that we have this great man view of history that sort of posits that powerful women are an anomaly. And I think this story and many others speaks to a much broader secret history, that of powerful women that are teaching and mentoring and learning from and reacting to one another and how that process has a huge influence on our world even today. So uh, just to speak of a few of their accomplishments that absolutely have an impact on our daily lives, we might know that like one helped Christianize Britain certainly, you know, has impacted the United States. And the other, as a military leader, came up with some strategies and tactics that were being used during, all the way up and during World War I. Um, we still can travel on roads that one queen built and repaired, you know, even today. And most of us have encountered these women, as I mentioned, in myth and legend, whether that's with, you know, Wagner's opera or other fairy tales or legends or Shakespeare's Macbeth or even more recently with Game of Thrones. So speaking of Game of Thrones, you were writing this, <laughs> of course, you were writing this and researching this at the height of Game of Thrones mania. And there are some interesting parallels, not only in the stunning plot twists, but also in the portrayal of warring queens and, and the extra layer of politics and just general shade that women rulers had to, to navigate. Did Game of Thrones influence in any way how you told this story? That's a great question. I don't think overtly, but of course, we're probably all influenced by things that are, you know, the zeitgeist at the time. I think right away when I read this history, I saw the connections and there's so many parallels. It's quite eerie, even if they're not deliberate. But, you know, in terms of um, we see a lot of things in terms of like Cersei's fear of being replaced by a younger queen. A lot of those dynamics will play out in Brunhild's life. And Fredegund um, and Cersei, there are a lot of really uncanny parallels in the ways they dispose of supposedly their husbands and, you know, their stepchildren. So uh, in addition to women just seizing the throne, you know, as regents and then staying put, you know, for quite, quite a long period of time. 
Well, and there's also the the different kingdoms that have influence yes. as well. Because, for example, Brunhild, she was from the Visigoths. And this whole blow up between Fredegon and Brunhild, this bloody, bloody rivalry that lasted decades, started with her older sister marrying the king who later became Fredegon's husband. Can you give listeners a taste of what that story is about? Sure. And it is dizzying. So, I mean, this is really a wild ride, a case where truth is stranger than fiction. And a lot of times as I was writing this, I thought if this if this was fiction, your editor would make you cut it out because it's just so unbelievable. So the Cliff Notes version is we have brother kings that are all ruling adjoining kingdoms. And one king reaches out to the Visigoths. These are Frankish kings, reaches out to the Visigoths and what are now, you know, Spain and marries one of the younger daughters and has this great alliance. And his brother in the neighboring kingdom is a little jealous of this alliance. And it's like, oh, you have an international alliance. I want one too. I want to be able to essentially counter it. And he realizes that this, you know, younger daughter has an older, you know, sister. And so he goes to the king and says, I'd really like, you know, to marry her. And of course the king says, you know, you've got to be kidding me. And so he makes this really ridiculous offer where he essentially offers a third of his kingdom, you know, in exchange for her hand. And so the king accepts, but shortly thereafter, he's not so enamored with his new wife, Brunhild's sister. And she threatens to leave and to take all of, you know, that land with her. And she is mysteriously found murdered in her bed. And three days later, Fredegon, who is a former slave, you know, in the kitchen who had worked her way up, but marries the king. And so Brunhild and Fredegon begin our story, not as political rivals, but as sisters-in-law, as one has been potentially and most likely involved in the murder of the other sister. Listeners, if you're just joining us, I'm speaking with <laughs> Shelley Puhak, author of The Dark Queens, The Bloody Rivalry That Forged the Medieval World. The book is about two real-life queens who, during much of the 6th century, ruled a significant portion of Western Europe, stretching across most of modern-day France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, parts of Germany and Switzerland. But yet their stories aren't so widely known, or at least not in the U.S. And I'm wondering, are these stories, are these queens and their stories more common knowledge in France? They are a little better known. Um, and I, there are, there's a new French edition of the Dark Queens that has, you know, come out in France. So I think they're a little bit better known on the continent and there are more statues and references to them, but they still are often overshadowed, you know, by the Renaissance Queens who came after them. So I want to talk about your process of writing this book. I mean, this is not easy to to go unearthing history that happened 1400 years ago. And I, I guess first, let's just get the uh, the technical terms out of the way. You call this narrative nonfiction. What do you exactly mean by that? So I think the difference between narrative nonfiction and an academic history is that 
narrative nonfiction is trying to take the reader along and to get a glimpse of like the day by day and the decision-making process uh, behind these two characters' lives versus a more academic history that might focus more on dates, times, places. That said, I did my very best to you know research this just like an academic history and to make sure it was vetted and fact-checked by you know academic experts in the field. Um, and you know the notes section at the end in the bibliography, you know, are about almost you know a quarter or a third of the book. So they're pretty extensive. So for folks who are really interested in you know tracking down those original documents, there is a way to do that. But a narrative nonfiction also gives you a little bit more freedom where you can speculate as long as you do so responsibly by, you know, saying probably or likely. And there certainly are gaps in this history because it happened so long ago and because such an effort was made to erase it. And so narrative nonfiction gave me a little bit of freedom to speculate about what they might have been feeling or seeing or, or why some of these events might have happened in spots where the historical record was a little threadbare. And this book is very engrossing and like Game of Thrones, it's very binge worthy. And it's largely because of how easy it is to follow and how much of a novel um, it reads like. And I want to ask, like, were there specific parts where you felt where, you know, you're looking at these other books that are more conventional history and in your interpretation of trying to get inside of the heads of these women, were there any parts that you as a woman, do you feel that you had more insight than the people who may have written these histories as to what these women were thinking? Absolutely. And I'll tell you why. A lot of what was recorded was written down by churchmen. So these are celibate men who are living, you know, relatively restricted lives. So there were oftentimes things that happened that you could just make common sense um, conclusions. For example, tracing back, oh, this is happening when this queen is discovering she's about two or three months pregnant. That's why she's making these decisions. And people would say, all of a sudden, this woman has gone completely crazy and she's taking all these extra safety measures and she's, and, you know, she's doing X, Y, and Z and she's narrowing her circle. And why is she doing this? And I think, you know, any modern day woman could say, oh, well, she's three months pregnant in a world where, you know, the infant mortality rate is about, you know, 50% and dysentery is rampant. And so maybe that's why she's closing her circle and going off into the country, not because of some other reason, but just for practical considerations. So there are a lot of those instances that were just completely overlooked just because of the limitations of the people who were retelling the story. There was one part that that struck me, and I believe it was when both uh, Fredegon and Chilperic, is that how I say it? You know, just to make you feel better, these names <laughs> had multiple pronunciations, even in this time period. So you, you know, potato, potato, Chilperic, Kilperic, you, you know, you can pick whichever one you prefer. So this came right as Fredegon and Chilperic were, had been chased out of Paris, and they were really on the run, about to just lose it all to uh, Brunhild and her husband. And you had brought up that, you know, when she came up with this strategy to dispose of her rival, her, her brother-in-law, um, she had just 
she would be in her postpartum phase. Like she would still be actively um, bleeding from the birth of one of her sons. And that kind of context isn't something that you often see in in history. But um, and also there was a part where she she did seem to be getting rather paranoid, but it was also because she had lost so many of her male heirs and knew she was about to have another heir without knowing the the gender. Um, She was also very relentless as far as um, just striking fear into the hearts and minds of her rivals. Um, Can you, have you found any kind of parallel with just the bloodthirsty public displays of executions of rivals with other women who take power? Oh, with other women. I think what's unique in Fredegan's case is because she was formerly an enslaved person, she has no family to fall back on. So for example, where there are oftentimes other powerful women who are able to let their brothers or their fathers or uncles, you know, do some of this some of provide some of the muscle for them. She doesn't have that option and she kind of has to go all in because she has no one else to rely on. But there certainly are instances of other queens. I don't know that they reach this level, but of, you know, just being absolutely relentless and fierce because they couldn't back down. You know, they don't have the camaraderie that comes with having served in an army and perhaps having all of those, you know, buddies who are going to have your back and they have to inspire absolute confidence and awe and fear. And they have a very short time to do that. So this is a woman who's leading armies. She can't hesitate or, you know, her troops will hesitate. And so I do think uh, there is some of that, that she had to play the role, whether she's, you know, fully invested in it or not, because so much hinged on that. Listeners, I am speaking with Shelley Puhak, author of The Dark Queen's The Bloody Rivalry That Forged the Medieval World. And the book is a work of narrative nonfiction about the lives of Queen Brunhild and Queen Fredegon, who were 6th century queens in what is modern-day France and slightly beyond. Well, actually, significantly beyond. Um, you went into researching this book largely during the pandemic. And these are not histories that you can easily find online. Can you describe some of your your detective work in this period and, and who all made it possible? So shout out to the librarians who are the unsung heroes of, I think, um, the pandemic, although there are so many. But in this case, I was very, very lucky to have gotten to travel right, um, you know, in late 2019. I didn't know that that was going to be my only research trip, but it did end up, you know, being so. But luckily, I was able to tick off most of like the major, you know, spots that I needed to see libraries, museums, crypts, um, archaeological sites. So that was immensely helpful. But I also have to say one thing that we are so privileged, you know, live in this time is that so much in the archives and in libraries is able to be digitized. So I can't tell you how many favors I had to call in and begging emails I had to send, but I was amazed at the amount of material 
that people were willing to share and were able to kind of work around to get to me. So a lot of these medieval manuscripts have been digitized by um, the British Museum or the French National Library. So they exist in some you know, format where if folks are interested, you can actually go through and flip through some of these accounts and other accounts um, had been translated. And there were also a lot of scholars who were just incredibly generous with their time. It might've had something to do with the fact we were all stuck home, <laughs> but they certainly were willing to um, lend their expertise and sort of point me in the right direction. So there was a lot of detective work involved, but there was also a lot of luck and also depending upon, you know, the kindness of essentially strangers. So who specifically were the authors of the works that you relied most heavily upon? And how did you get so access great, to those? Sure. So the great thing about the this history is we have something that we don't have with so many other histories, which is we have eyewitness accounts and we have actual like close to verbatim quotations, which just doesn't often happen. So they're just by essentially, you know, pure luck, we have these two eyewitness accounts. They're certainly both biased. So you have to sort through it and, and kind of figure out what were their motivations and what might have been left out. But in both cases, these men are writing for publication among their peers, and they're not able to completely invent things or completely lie. You can certainly shade things one way or another, but you can't, you know, say a battle happened if it didn't, because people will say, I was there at that dinner and no, that didn't happen. So that's just remarkable good luck. Um, we often call this time period the dark ages because they're dark of sources. But, you know, it turns out it's not that things weren't being written and produced. Essentially, what happened is at this time period, we have a shift in writing medium from writing on papyrus, which is preserved really great in like dry, you know, hot climates like Egypt, but does not do well in like cold, damp northern France. Um, and we have the shift from papyrus to parchment. So a lot of sources that were written on papyrus molded and disintegrated and we lost them. And things that we were lucky enough that somebody recopied onto parchment, we have. In this case, Gregory of Tours' History of the Franks, written by this bishop, is like this epic, crazy, sprawling, very disorganized history, but that has come down to us. And we also have these poems that were written by uh, this man named Fortunatus, who was a poet, but was essentially like a hype man for hire by various courts. And you would pay him to show up and write a poem about like how hot your queen was or what a, you know, how great you were as a warrior. And you might hire him to get you out of trouble if you needed to apologize. But through him, we have a sense of how people wanted to be viewed or what they were paying, you know, to uh, be seen as publicly. And we have a lot of other like secondary accounts or things that were written at the very end of their lives or, you know, like 20 years after, but it's really great to have these accounts that are being written in real time. So there's a dinner party and then somebody's going home and writing, oh my gosh, you're not going to believe what happened. You know, she said this to her and this is what she said. So that's just, you know, amazing. Good luck. Well, and there were also the, the original words out of, well, out of the pen of Brunhilde was, uh, were her letters to the Byzantine court Yes, and the Pope and Pope Gregory too. So yeah, we do get these glimpses through these uh through these letters and even through some like inscriptions of a uh, of Fredegund. So we do get these little bits and pieces of their voices, which is also really rare to get to hear women from this time period speaking from beyond the grave. Well, and what's even more remarkable about it is 
how they survived the level of erasure that came in the years immediately after their rule. Talk about the backlash and the investment in erasure and just the ferocity that went into destroying their legacies. Ferocity is a great word, and it's kind of very chilling. I think it really speaks to the level of kind of virulence and absolute violence that was needed to suppress this this story and the lengths they were willing to go to. Um, The backlash to these women's reigns is going to impact Europe for centuries, and it's really going to set the world back, I would argue, in, in many ways. We have them both standing up to the church at a time when the church is debating which direction it wants to go in, you know, whether more sort of tolerant global view or more fundamentalist. And we all know how that turns out. But also, um, you know, the male successor, in order to get key players on board with betraying and, you know, um, and erasing these women, and it turned out to be the son of Fredegon. So he was essentially erasing his aunt and his mother. Um, But he made concessions to his nobles. He struck a deal with them, which is largely seen as an early Magna Carta, which limited the king's power, and it ensured that Europe would forever be fractured into these mini nation states that's going to set the stage for, you know, the medieval world as we know it. But, I mean, there was this effort to completely write them out of history. So we're not talking about to speak ill of them, but erase anything they did, however minor, whether it was a toll that was enacted or a bridge, just erased it. It would be, you know, akin to a modern politician just, I don't know, writing Queen Elizabeth completely out of the record as if nothing happened in those in those years. And then we could see that there are certain chronicles. And if you look at different versions and that, you know, we're able to date them by, you know, various other means, that you can see there's an initial chronicle and then we can see where words are inserted and saying, you know, she was too ambitious and she deserved this fate and she got what was coming to her. And they just keep adding and shaping and adding and shaping uh, to kind of discourage any women because there were women that were following in their footsteps. There were women that had looked at the tactics they had used and had tried to seize power themselves. And so We also have historical chroniclers actively discouraging women from following in their footsteps all the way up until like Louis XIV had a one of the illustrations in the book. There's this deck of playing cards he got and they're all women. And these are former queens. And these are like women that you want to maybe date or, you know, marry and women you really want to avoid because they're terrible. And they show up in this deck of cards. So we, you know, we know all the way up until Louis the Fourteenth, people are being warned, like you don't want to let these women anywhere near you, and you don't want to encourage other women to be like them. Well, Shelley Puhak, we are just about out of time. I'm wondering, is there anything else that you'd like to to share, or just a reflection that you'd like to end on? Something that maybe we we didn't get around to speaking about. Sure. Um, I'm so grateful for this time and to have, you know, this time discussing the Queen's story with you. And I think I just want to reflect on the idea that we need to be really careful about the stories we tell ourselves about the past, because when we erase stories like Brunhild and Fredegans, or erase all the other women who made their reigns possible or who followed in their footsteps, we really reinforce the message that women haven't earned the right to be heard or seen or remembered. And I think 
all of us are still kind of suffering under that burden today and everything we can do to pick at our collective history and open it up, you know, benefits all of us. My guest today has been Shelley Puhak, author of The Dark Queens, The Bloody Rivalry That Forged the Medieval World. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Shannon. Music in this program is by one of the earliest known female composers in the Western world, Byzantine Greek composer Cassia. You are listening to KGNU FM 88.5 Boulder, KGNU 1390 Denver. Stay tuned for Counterspin. It all-